1: There is a bit of explicit content in the podcast you are about to hear. It's Monday, August 20th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Steve Kornacki, sitting in for Mike Pesca. So, it happened yesterday on Meet the Press. Rudy Giuliani said something that absolutely lit the political world on fire. He said, truth isn't truth. And he was talking about Donald Trump and the prospect of him testifying, the prospect of him sitting down and talking, at least, to special counsel Robert Mueller and his team. And Rudy Giuliani said that. Chuck Todd seemed to react with bafflement. And there was all sorts of coverage of it throughout the day and the night. And we figured it was going to dominate the headlines Monday. But you know how things end up going more often than not these days. Something that feels huge happens at nine in the morning we all start dissecting it we all start trying to play out all the implications and then about three hours later something that seems even more world shattering will happen then we all forget about the first thing we move on to the new thing and then that thing gets eclipsed and forgotten by something even bigger or bigger seeming if you happen to blink on sunday and miss it though here is the full exchange. And when you tell me that, you know, he should
2: testify because he's going to tell the truth and he shouldn't worry. Well, that's so silly because it's somebody's version of the truth, not the truth. He didn't have a, a conversation. Truth is about, truth. I, I don't mean to go like. I, no, I it isn't truth. Truth isn't truth. The president of the United States says
1: I didn't. Truth
2: is a truth. Mr. Mayor, do you realize what I. I, I.
1: Now, in a way, this isn't new. Giuliani emerged as one of Donald Trump's most prominent supporters late in the 2016 campaign. He had a shot to become his attorney general. Now, he is his top lawyer. And through all of this time, Giuliani's attempts to promote or to defend or to explain away something Trump has said or done have produced a number of moments like this where he is the subject of withering contempt from popular culture and even from the press. But still... The heat generated by this one as it was playing out felt a little more intense than usual. At least it felt that way to me. And maybe, like so many other eruptions of the Trump era, this will just die down and fade out quickly. Maybe it's already dying down and fading out quickly. But the fact that we have now been through many cycles like this with Rudy Giuliani does have me wondering about a bigger question. Is his alliance with Donald Trump going to be Rudy Giuliani's legacy? And this is kind of wild when you think about it, because not very long ago, if you mentioned the name Rudy Giuliani to anyone, the chances were extremely good that they would have responded with something about 9-11. 9-11, the day of the worst terror attack ever on American soil, the day when Mayor Rudy Giuliani's steady and determined presence offered powerful reassurance to the entire nation as it absorbed the trauma from ground zero. That was the day that he earned the nickname that seemed like it would stick to him forever, America's Mayor. With time, it even became a joke that there was really nothing else to Rudy Giuliani except 9-11. Rudy Giuliani, there's th- there's only three things he mentioned in a sentence, a noun and a verb and 9-11. I mean, there's nothing else. There's nothing else. That was Joe Biden ribbing Giuliani back in 2007. But behind jokes like that, there was even back then, and for years after it, there was a deep respect, even a reverence, maybe an admiration for Rudy Giuliani in this country. It may be hard to put yourself back in that moment now, but if you lived through it, you probably do have some recollection of just what Rudy Giuliani meant, not just to New York, but to America and to the world on September 11, 2011, and in the aftermath of that horrible day. Maybe you remember that in the hours immediately after the attack, the president, George W. Bush, wasn't really in public view. He left an elementary school in Florida. He delivered a brief taped address to the nation. He was otherwise whisked away to a secure location... But Rudy, on the other hand, he was on the scene right where the rubble was at the World Trade Center. The whole country was watching carnage and chaos and television. And the mayor of New York provided the appearance of something that people desperately wanted in that moment. They wanted calm and they wanted control. He attended every funeral. He became a symbol of his city's resilience, of America's resilience. He was celebrated on Oprah. There was even a movie of his life story. James Woods is Rudy Giuliani. For weeks after 9-11, the entire country weeped, and it also braced itself for the next major attack. Everyone was sure it was a question of when it would come, not if it would come. And no one was quite sure, as all of this was happening, no one was quite sure how life could ever get back to normal, or even if normal was possible anymore. Saturday Night Live returned for its new season at the very end of September, about three weeks after the attacks. But the show began differently that night than it ever had before. It began with Lorne Michaels, the executive producer, and Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor, on stage together. And Michaels asked Giuliani a simple question.
0: Can we be funny?
1: (laughs) Why start now? And in that moment, none of that felt cheesy or awkward or forced at all. Rudy Giuliani was the man every American wanted to see and wanted to hear that from. He was Time Magazine's Person of the Year for the year 2001. They called him indomitable. His popularity reached historic heights. His appeal extended far beyond politics, Just the day before 9-11, Giuliani had been finishing out his second term with New Yorkers, having long ago tuned him out. Overnight, though, that image was entirely, completely transformed. He would forever be the mayor who rose to the occasion just when his city and just when his country needed it the most. The rest of his career, it would all be secondary to that. America's mayor. But now, now I find myself wondering... Giuliani has spent two years advocating for Donald Trump and doing it in an aggressive, sometimes abrasive, very Rudy, and very Trump way, for that matter. How much of his own legacy has he now attached to Donald Trump? A few years from now, will this be the chapter of the Rudy Giuliani story that people think of first when they hear his name? Or... Will it end up being like so many of the events and uproars of the Trump era before this? Something that feels huge and defining in the moment, but that ends up being overtaken and forgotten just as quickly, to the point that a few years from now, people revert to their old 9-11 memories of Rudy. Legacies can seem permanent, but they can change quickly. Whether Rudy Giuliani is remembered as America's mayor, or as Trump's lawyer, or as something else entirely, is an open question. On the show today, I am going to tell you about a very unusual and very intense competition that I am locked in right now with a friend of mine. It involves state lines and state borders. But first... How about some midterm talk? Midterm elections, they're coming up in a few months, and I talked to one of the best analysts of elections of political parties of the state of American politics. His name is Sean Trendy. I hope you're already reading him, and if you're not, you will want to after this. He is the senior elections analyst from Real Clear Politics.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: Joining me now is the senior elections analyst for Real Clear Politics. Uh, somebody who, when he posts something, whether it's on Twitter or a new article, I want to read it. I want to know what he's thinking. For my money, one of the absolute best election analysts out there, Sean Trendy. Sean, thank you for joining us.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: I want to tell people, and I think maybe we'll get to this a little bit later, there's a very specific reason why you're on my radar kind of to begin with and why I I think so highly of you, and and it relates to the rise of Donald Trump and and relates to um, sort of the the, the questions about the future of Trumpism. I'll kind of tease that now and maybe get into that later. I don't think it's something to lead with because I I think I kind of want to lead off with what is on everybody's mind, which is, you know, the elections coming up in November and... um, Let me ask it this way. You know, when people glance at all the the numbers that analysts talk about all the time, is it as rosy for Democrats trying to get the the House majority as it looks? Or is there is there another piece of data, another data point people should be thinking about here?
2: You know, it's a weird year. And I feel like we say that every year these days. But this really is because you look kind of at the the seat by seat races and generally speaking if the democrats do a little better than split the toss up races they'll they'll take control of the house but if you look at a year like 2006 where the democrats gained 30 seats president bush's job approval was 37% on election day the generic ballot they were showing double digit leads over the summer so kind of the the macro conditions That we're seeing, and most analysts think Democrats probably have to win the popular vote by like five points at least to take control of the House. So this generic lead of seven points is is good, but again, not great. Um, The macro conditions just don't suggest the type of wave that these special elections and the seat-by-seat analysis suggest.
1: Yeah, I mean, so let, let let's look closer at that. Then, when you um, probably most people listening to this don't have a map of all 435 districts right in front of them, although some of them, some of them probably <laughs> do. People are really into that kind of stuff right now. But when you look at the um, the kinds of districts, you know, Democrats are looking at. We we talk sometimes about, you know, I know a lot of attention to these districts that Hillary Clinton won in 2016, but they have Republican members of Congress. Um, but then you look at like we just had this special election uh, out in Ohio. And I think this is the district you live in, the, the 12th mm-hmm. district of Ohio, the Columbus area. That's not a Hillary Clinton district. That's, uh, you know, Trump won it by 11 points and the, the Republicans barely eking out the win. Um, it, is the story for Democrats, is it mainly concentrated in those in those districts that Hillary Clinton won and then trying to add a few things? Or, or, or is the story a little wider than than we uh, than we might naturally think?
2: It's wider. You know, again, these, these special elections are the best indicators that we have, but we have, uh, you know, a lot of districts where where Trump did pretty well, like Virginia's 5th district, that are just, uh, you know, teetering. Part of it, you know, Virginia's in trouble because they have – the Republicans just have a nightmarish candidate on top of the ticket. Um, but there's just a lot of things at, at the micro level working against Republicans. But, yeah, there, there are some uh, – some pretty heavily Trump districts that are looking kind of weak for the party right now.
1: I, I said at the outset of this that uh, th- there's a particular reason um, Sean, Sean Trendy, our guest here, is somebody I really look to on uh, you know, when it comes to analysts for any kind of election, any kind of you know, broader you know, political trends. And, and the reason is you wrote a piece probably about five years ago now, and it was in the wake of the 2012 election. And the conventional wisdom coming out of the 2012 election after Mitt Romney, you know, lost to uh, Barack Obama was the Republican Party would not have a chance in, in 2016 unless it didn't diversify its constituency and, and do it quickly. And then there, were, there was talk in, in the Republican National Committee itself with this, if people even remember this, this autopsy report that it commissioned after the 2012 election, uh, you know, talked about reaching out to uh, minority constituencies. There was the idea of immigration reform. There was a brief moment right after the 2012 election when even Sean Hannity went on the air and said he was for immigration uh, reform now. He would thought about it. And you wrote a piece that basically you weren't advocating anything uh, ideologically, but you were just looking at the numbers. And you were saying the idea might be more complicated than that, that there was room for the Republican Party potentially to grow in terms of its support with white voters. Um, And you weren't necessarily anticipating the rise of Donald Trump, but I think you saw the opening in American politics for the rise of somebody who – Created the kind of demographic friction that Donald Trump has managed to do.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think it's important to say that you know I'll just repeat what you said, which is that this isn't necessarily what I was advising. I'm kind of an open borders guy, but I just thought that a lot of the analysis that was going on uh, was flatly incorrect. It was ultimate. It was it was nice to be validated, but it was kind of like wishing on a cursed monkey's paw. Um, <laughs> it wasn't. The way I want it to be validated but I, I think the theory is held up which is uh, to put it simply you know whites are still seventy percent of the electorate and if you're winning sixty percent of seventy percent of the electorate unless you get absolutely shut out everywhere else you're going to win a lot of elections now the problem that Republicans have with Trump is that I think he's going to struggle to keep the white vote up around 60 percent because of what he's doing with whites with college degrees and moderate whites. Um, but but that's a different story. It,
1: it, the other thing people talk about so much with Trump and it, we, who knows it, it, it could be, um, you know, not till January of, of 2025 that we're talking about a, a post Trump America. So it may still be a while. But whenever that moment comes post Trump America, I, I'm curious what you think about. The political landscape that will be left, because when you sketched out, when you when you put those numbers out there in 2013 and said, hey, you know, the Republican Party could theoretically just expand its appeal with white voters and still be in position to win elections, I think you sketched it out to the middle of the century at least. Um, if I'm, I'm remembering, I don't have it in front of me right now, I think you, you said, hey, who's to say that we might, wouldn't be in the middle of the century and Republicans aren't getting 70 plus you know, plus percent of the white vote? Do you think that's the direction long term post-Trump that we're going where the Republican Party just takes up a, a bigger and bigger share of a smaller and smaller white America?
2: You know, th- there's two schools of thought on this, and I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. I, I'm not sure where I come down. The, the first school of thought just says, no, at a certain point, you hit whites who are really liberal, and whites are probably becoming more liberal, though I'm less sure about that. Um, but, there, but there is, look, you, you do run out of moderate and conservative whites at some point, and so there is a ceiling here. The flip side of that, though, is that there's been a lot of social science work, and Ryan Enos at Harvard University has done some fantastic experiments where, you know, he's put Hispanic speakers on a train platform. Uh, and then interviewed people on the train about their attitudes towards immigration, and just having the Hispanic train passengers shifts people away uh, from support for legalized immigration uh, or liberal immigration.
1: Policies. Away from so you're saying, like, just having day to day contact actually moves people in the opposite direction.
2: That's right. That's right. Uh, and he's done this in a couple of different contexts. He, he, When they tore down the Cabrini Green Apartments, he traced where the residents went, and those, were, those precincts all became more conservative. So to a certain degree, I think Trump might be a function, an outgrowth uh, of these demographic changes. Um, that is something I really— do not want to see happen in this country. But if we're going to do good analysis, we have to be open to possibilities we don't like. Uh, and so I'm rooting against that, but I sure don't rule it out.
1: The other thing, too, I, it seems to me is just the, the balance between a, a lot of people maybe assuming or or looking for Folks who do election analysis to offer predictions versus sort of explanations more more sort of you know using data using demographics using um, uh, you know past history to kind of try to create some context for understanding and interpreting what's happening right now versus taking the data and saying okay there's a sixty eight percent chance this happens a sixty two percent chance that happens the, the 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 value what do you think the value of the predictive stuff is.
2: I you know, I have actually kind of moved away from prediction in my writing. Part of it is that there are just people who are better at it than I am and I think I'm better on the explaining side. Part of it though is that people in audience has a hard time dealing with probabilities. You know, people saw in 2016, when you know the the models varied from having Hillary having a seventy percent chance of winning up to somewhere in the nineties, I would go give speeches uh, and I'd try to explain to people: Look, even if it's an eighty-six percent chance, like when you play Russian roulette, you have a one and you have an eighty-six percent chance of winning, but you you you'd never play Russian roulette because you know that fourteen percent is real, uh, and that's what we're talking about here. There is a real chance Donald Trump could win, and, and people still want to round it up to a hundred percent. You can't do that so I think I think if you're careful with it and to his credit Nate goes out of his way to try to explain this uh, you know the limitations of probabilities but uh, I, I think it has a chance of being more misleading uh, for audiences that that don't have an intuitive grasp of probabilities, uh, then it is helpful.
1: I, I also, it's one of those I wonder, too, if, if there's if there's an issue with just, hey, th- we only get one election at the end of the day. You could, we could <laughs> say that there's, you know, a 66 percent chance that, that Hillary Clinton's going to beat Donald Trump. And if, if it were a baseball game and, you know, there were going to be a, the equivalent of 100 elections, 100 at-bats, we could see if it actually happens, you know, 66 times. If, if But you only get one election, so it's sort of like there's one election so at the yeah. end of the day you just you know you you can't really test these probabilities in some ways
2: your your intuition here is exactly right um you know someone said something to me like, oh, that hasn't happened in 40 years. And I'm like, well, that's just 10 elections. Like, you know, I've probably got five more presidential elections to cover before I'm retirement age. And that's a long way off. It it just makes it really hard to make those probabilities meaningful for people.
1: Well, let me uh, let me close with this, just uh, kind of looking ahead to this November from the the, the perspective of of each party. If if you're a a diehard Democrat and you want to take back the, the House, if you're a Died in the wool Republican and you want to hang on or a Trump supporter and you want to hang on. What would be the best in terms of what you look at? What would be the best indicator for Democrats to see over the next two months? What would be the best indicator for Republicans to see?
2: I, for, I, I would watch the individual House race polls that are coming out. You know, it's a shame we don't have any more special elections or major special elections uh, scheduled, though I think those state legislative races are still interesting. But, you know, if, if these individuals, we do have some very good pollsters, and Monmouth is one of them. And if, if those individual state race polls continue to look dire for Republicans, I would tend to believe them. The other thing is to wa- maybe watch the balance between Democratic campaigns and Republican campaigns releasing polls. Both parties tend to release their best case scenario, so you can't read those polls. Uh, literally, but at the same time, if Republicans aren't retorting with polls showing their candidate in great shape, I I think you can take it as a pretty good given that, that the Republican candidates really aren't in great shape.
1: Yeah. I'm with you, too, by the way, on Monmouth. If if folks haven't been following this, they have been putting out these polls in in key congressional races, House races around the country, which um, they have a really good reputation. And and we say this is this era when people are following this more than ever. I can't remember seeing House race polls like this, um, such high quality House race polls um, at this point. So I I, I love seeing those, too. Um, Sean Trendy, senior elections analyst from Real Clear Politics. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The spiel. Like most people, I get a few weeks of vacation time every year. And I end up taking at least some of it during the summer. Now, it's not because I want to go to the beach. I actually hate the beach. And it's not because I just like spending my time out in the fresh, warm, summer air. I actually hate the summer, too. That's when the air tends to be something more than just warm and fresh. It's also hot. It's humid. It's muggy. It's miserable. And it makes me long for the fall and the winter, which are the seasons that I truly love. So why would I use my time off in the summer and not in the fall or the winter? Well, it usually ends up being because I have no choice. It's just the way the world I'm in works. Summer usually ends up being the slowest time of the year and therefore the easiest time of the year to find a chunk of days when I can just pack up and get out of town. But because I hate the summer, and I don't like going to the beach, and I don't like big crowds, and I don't like all the places that people usually go during the summer, it means I end up taking my vacation in places that aren't usually known as vacation spots. For instance, there is where a friend and I just spent some of my vacation this summer in Minot, North Dakota. Now, first, let me say that I really, really, really enjoyed being in Minot, which is a couple of hours north of Bismarck. It's smack in the central part of the state, maybe a little in the north-central part of the state. It's a city with a small-town feel. The state fair was going on when we were there. That was a lot of fun to check out. There's also been a lot of activity in Minot and around Minot because of the fracking boom, which isn't quite a boom anymore, but still, there's all sorts of new restaurants and hotels and businesses in Minot. Oh, and there's also a public basketball court with an elaborate dedication to Minot's most famous native, Dale Brown. Not the author, Dale Brown. The old college basketball coach, Dale Brown, from the LSU Tigers. He coached Shaq. He went to two Final Fours. He was very colorful. He challenged Bobby Knight to a naked wrestling match once. I'm not even kidding. You can Google that for the details. Maybe you know him. Probably you don't. But you got a kick out of being at the Dale Brown basketball court. ...in Minot, North Dakota. But the real reason that me and my friend were in Minot... ...the real reason we were anywhere in North Dakota... ...for that matter... ...is that we are in a race. It is a race that's been going on for years now... ...and it will probably last for at least a few more. We are in a race to see who can get to all 50 states first. So when I told my friend, Paul is his name... ...when I told Paul that I had a few days off this summer... ...and that I was going to use them to knock off a few more states... He told me he wanted to come along with me, because if I was going to get closer to that magic number of 50, then so was he. And the big moment arrived when we approached the North Dakota border at the far eastern edge of Montana along Highway 2. We stopped the car about 100 yards before a big blue sign that says, Welcome to North Dakota. Legendary. It was a sunny day, and it actually wasn't too hot. And there were beautiful planes on both sides of us stretching as far as we could see. And there were cars and big rig trucks, mostly big rig trucks, whizzing by at 70 miles an hour. While I was still trying to take pictures, Paul began walking toward the border. And neither of us had ever actually been in North Dakota before. We were both tied at 41 states visited, and suddenly the stakes kind of occurred to me. If I just stood there and I just let Paul walk across the state line first, then that would mean that for a few brief moments, he would pull ahead of me in the race to 50. Now, yes, of course, it's true. I would then amble across the border myself right after him and then tie it right up at 42. So it didn't really matter. But in that moment, it kind of did matter, kind of mattered a lot to me. I didn't want him crossing the border first, and I didn't want to fall behind, even for a few seconds. So I put my camera down, and I sprinted. And because the highway traffic was so loud, he never even knew I was coming until it was too late. And when I ran past that big blue North Dakota sign, and I heard Paul shouting all sorts of obscenities at me, I felt a feeling that was both totally exhilarating and also wildly out of proportion with what I'd actually achieved. By crossing the Montana-North Dakota line before him, it meant that I moved ahead of Paul, 42 to 41, in that race to 50. And then, about 10 seconds later, he evened things up at 42. And that is where we stand right now. We have both been to 42 states. Or have we? Because when we got back in the car and we continued on our way on Route 2, we started to talk more about our competition And we found ourselves asking some pretty basic questions that we probably should have been asking a long time ago. Questions like, what does it actually mean to be in a state? For instance, we both agreed that air travel doesn't count. If you cross Mississippi at 36,000 feet in an American Airlines flight, then you haven't really been in Mississippi. So that one shouldn't count. And I have some issues of my own for that matter. The big one involves Arizona. I drove through the very far northwest corner of the state once on Interstate 15. All told, I was probably there for 20 minutes. The scenery, by the way, was unbelievable. You are literally driving through a desert with all sorts of ancient rock formations and breathtaking vistas. It is an amazing thing to behold. But here is the thing. I never actually got out of the car. I didn't pass through any towns. I didn't stop at any local businesses, mostly because there were no towns to pass through. There were no local businesses to stop at. For that matter, I don't even think I saw another human being. I saw no signs of human life or human civilization. I sat in the driver's seat of my car. I didn't pull over to the side of the road. I didn't even put my feet on the ground. I didn't even open the windows. I was breathing in ventilated air from my car that I might have picked up in Utah. Did I even get any Arizona breath? in my body. Now granted, I got closer to the ground in Arizona than if I'd been at 36,000 feet in an airplane, but still, as a technical matter, my feet never touched the ground in Arizona. So, was I really in Arizona? Should it count? And we have asked other people about all of this, too. Opinions on this seem to vary. other people have also suggested other possible standards for what it actually means to be in a state. Like you need to have a meal in that state or you need to buy something in that state. Maybe commerce is very important here. Or how about you just have to talk to someone? You need to create some kind of human connection with someone who lives in that state. All sorts of possible standards were suggested to us. I have to admit this, though, if I am really honest about it, if I really think about it, I have to say I am not so sure that my Arizona 1 should actually count because it just doesn't feel right when I think about it. And I am definitely sitting here kicking myself for not getting out of my car and just simply putting my feet on the ground while I was there. Because now, even if I hit that 50-state mark before my friend Paul... I am afraid that it might not feel like a real victory. In the back of my mind, I will probably be wondering if I didn't maybe possibly cut a corner with Arizona and if, therefore, my triumph should come with an asterisk. I don't know how to define what exactly it means to be in a state, but in my gut, I know when I've been in one. I think there's a lesson here, too, about the importance of rules, about the value of rules. We tend to think about rules as as something that protects us. They protect us from being taken advantage of. They protect us from being cheated. They protect us from being screwed over. But there's a flip side to all of that too. Because when you earn something, when you win something, when you achieve something, you want to feel that you have truly earned it, that you have truly achieved it, that you have truly won it. And that means you want to be able to tell yourself even if you don't have to admit it to anybody else. You want to be able to tell yourself deep inside that you absolutely, positively, 100% followed the rules. That is what makes an achievement really feel like an achievement. And now, if you'll excuse me, I think I need to sign off and find some cheap tickets to Tucson. And that's it for the first of five guest hosts this week. The gist is produced by Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bieneme, and Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Um Peru De Peru Du Peru. And thanks for listening.